Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. An Erio's original... I was born with a special gift. The ability to mentally transform any situation into the worst case scenario in my own brain. My therapist calls my gift catastrophizing. And that's why I'm uniquely qualified to scrutinize and analyze history's greatest disasters and find out who's to blame. They say history repeats itself. Not on my watch. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and I am The Alarmist. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into The Alarmist, a comedy podcast where we talk about history's greatest tragedies and figure out who's to blame. Today we'll be discussing the Manson family murders. But before we get started, I want to take a pause and ask everyone to rate, review, and subscribe to The Alarmist. It's really important for us uh, to get these reviews. It helps us keep the mics on and continue to make more of these episodes. So if you give us a five-star review, it's because of you that we get to continue to talk tragedies. I also want to state that listener discretion is advised for this episode We do talk about the details of this murder, so please be advised. Here's what you need to know about the Manson family murders. The 1960s was a decade marked by the Vietnam War, anti-war protests, 
civil rights movements and an emerging generation gap that peaked with defiance in 1967's famous Summer of Love. It was at this exact moment in time that Charles Manson, a career criminal who had spent the majority of his 32 years in correctional institutions, was released from prison. After making his way to San Francisco, Manson acquired a small following, mostly of young women from middle-class backgrounds. After isolating them, he manipulated his followers into believing he was the manifestation of Jesus and prophesied about an imminent apocalyptic race war. But Manson didn't just see himself as a prophet. He also had aspirations to become a rock star. Oh, garbage dump. While it was the 60s, and many people also had similar dreams, his music was, well, garbage. But that didn't stop him from moving his self-described family to Los Angeles, California, in hopes of getting discovered. Manson and his girls made their way around town, mostly crashing the L.A. party scene, where Manson would wield his girls in exchange for food, drugs, and shelter. After squatting in different locations, including the house of Beach Boys drummer Dennis Wilson, the family settled at Spawn Ranch. The 55-acre, mostly deserted movie ranch was owned by George Spawn. There, Manson led the family on LSD trips, group sex parties, and conducted daily sermons. After the release of the Beatles' White Album, Manson presented the album to his followers as confirmation of his predictions and said it contained coded messages about the impending race war. By this time in 1969, Manson had botched any musical opportunities he had had and his entertainment connections had run dry. He became openly angry. And in August of 1969, Manson announced it was time for the family to take action and fulfill their prophecy. On the night of August 8, 1969, Charles Manson selected his follower, Charles Tex Watson, and Manson girls, Susan Atkins, also known as Sadie, Patricia Kernwinkle, known as Katie, and new member to the group, Linda Kasabian. He gave them all knives and handed Tex a 22 caliber revolver. Manson then instructed Tex to go to record producer Terry Melcher's former home at 150 Cielo Drive in the wealthy Los Angeles neighborhood of Benedict Canyon and kill everyone there. The Cielo Drive home had recently been rented to actress Sharon Tate and her husband director Roman Polanski. Polanski was away in Europe working on a movie, but Tate, who was eight and a half months pregnant, was at her home with friends Abigail Folger, heiress to the coffee company, Wojtek Fikowski, and Jay Sebring. Tex and the Manson girls arrived at the house just after midnight. They cut the phone lines and jumped the fence. Stephen Parent, a teenager who had been visiting the property's caretaker, William Garretson, was pulling out of the driveway. Tex shot Parent four times in rapid succession, killing him. The group slit the screen of an open back window and went inside the house. 
In her grand jury testimony, Manson girl Susan Atkins, who was 21 at the time, recounted her participation in the Tate murders. Tex told me to go into the bedrooms. I went into two bedrooms, walked past one room and saw a woman sitting, wearing glasses, reading a book. She looked at me and smiled. I looked at her and waved my hand and smiled to her. I went on to the next room and I saw a man sitting with his back to me and the woman, Sharon, lying on the bed, apparently pregnant. And they were talking. Neither one of them saw me and I walked back into the living room and acknowledged to text that there were three more people. I went into the other bedroom and told them both to get up and go into the living room. Jay Sebring said, Can't you see she's pregnant? Let her sit down. Tex ordered them all to lie down on their stomachs in front of the fireplace. Jay Sebring didn't follow Tex's orders, and Tex shot him. Tex went over to Jay Sebring and bent down and viciously stabbed Jay Sebring in the back many times. And at that time, they began to plead for their lives. I saw Tex stab Abigail Folger, and just before he stabbed, she looked at him and let her arms go and looked at all of us and said, I give up. Take me. I went over and grabbed Sharon by the hand and put my arm around her neck. She looked at me and begged to let me have her sit down, and I was told before we even got there, no matter what they beg, don't give them any leeway. Anyway, I went over and put Sharon down on the couch. I looked at her, and I said, Woman, I have no mercy for you. Tex Watson, fatally shot and stabbed, Wojtek Frykowski, 51 times. He was also struck with a blunt object 13 times. Jay Sebring bled to death, was stabbed seven times, and shot once. Abigail Folger was stabbed 28 times. Sharon Tate, stabbed 16 times, was the last to die. Her unborn baby would also die. Before they left, Susan Atkins dipped a towel in Sharon's blood and wrote, Pig, on the door. The next night, August 10th, 1969, Charles Manson took the four murderers from the previous night at the Tate Polanski house, plus Leslie Van Houten and Steve Clem Grogan. After driving around for several hours, Manson chose 3301 Waverly Drive as their murder location. This was the home of supermarket executive Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. Manson and Tex entered the LaBianca house. He brought inside Kernwinkle and Van Houten, and they put pillowcases over the LaBianca's heads and tied their necks with lamp cords. Manson left at that point with LaBianca's wallet. His last words to Tex were, Make sure the girls get to do some of it, both of them. Tex later recalled in his memoir, As the girls ran to the bedroom on my instructions, I walked back to the sofa with the bayonet and the horror began all over again. I drove the chrome-plated blade down full force. Don't stab me anymore, Mr. LaBianca managed to scream, even though the first thrust had been through his throat. I'm dead. I'm dead. I could hear his wife screaming from the bedroom. What are you doing to my husband? There were the sounds of some sort of scuffle, and I ran in to join the girls. Tex discovered Mrs. LaBianca keeping the girls at bay, swinging the lamp tied to her neck. Tex stabbed Mrs. LaBianca multiple times with his bayonet. Then, he returned to the living room to finish killing Mr. LaBianca, who was stabbed a total of 14 times. The word war was carved on Mr. LaBianca's abdomen. 
a kitchen knife was planted on his throat and a fork was stabbed into his stomach. Tex returned to the bedroom to find Patricia Kernwinkle stabbing Mrs. LaBianca. Following Manson's orders to ensure the women played a part, Tex ordered Van Houten to join in the stabbing. At that point, it is believed Mrs. LaBianca was already dead. In LaBianca's blood, Krenwinkel wrote Rise and Death to Pigs on the walls. On the refrigerator door, she wrote Helter Skelter, spelled H-E-A-L-T-E-R, a misspelling of the Beatles' song title. Because of the brutal nature of the murders and the fact that some of the victims were celebrities, the Manson family murders shattered the American idea that you could be safe at home. It stoked paranoia that even good girls could commit such horrific crimes. The murders in the summer of 69 marked the end of the 1960s free love movement. Fun facts, a.k.a. death sats. Despite their similarities, Pig, written on Tate's door, Death to Pigs, written on the LaBianca's walls, any connection between the Tate-LaBianca murders was not initially apparent to LAPD and the L.A. County's Sheriff's Department. Initially, they believed the Tate murders were drug-related, and after finding out Mr. LaBianca had a large outstanding gambling debt, they assumed the murder was gambling-related. It was not until October 12, 1969, that Charles Manson and the other family members, including Susan Atkins, were arrested for suspected auto theft. Breakthroughs in the case were only made after Susan Atkins confessed her participation in the Tate-LaBianca murders to a couple of her jailhouse mates. Manson and the family were ultimately charged with a death penalty, but due to coinciding changes in California law outlawing capital punishment, their sentences were reduced to life in prison. So today with us, we have producer Amanda Lund. Hi, Rebecca. Fact checker Chris Smith. I'm back. (laughs) And a very special guest, Johnny Mays. Hi, Rebecca. Johnny is a, a writer. He's a very funny, funny human being and a, a friend of ours here at The Alarmist. And Johnny, you're a big Manson head. I would say I'm more of a Sharon head. I'm more into Sharon. Oh, mm. okay. Well, but, you know, obviously, I appreciate everybody. That's right. <laughs> and his, their paths crossed. So let's dive right in and start talking about some of these Things and people, uh, characters that we need to put up on the board and figure out if they're to blame. First, the most obvious, Sharon Tate. Just kidding. Manson. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. Charlie Um, Manson. Charlie Manson. Now, he's born in 1934, Cincinnati, Ohio, to a teenaged mother, and Charles Manson's early childhood and young life were spent bouncing around between relatives. His mother was an alcoholic, and one of the famous stories is that when he was a kid, she offered to trade him to someone in exchange for a couple of beers. 
As a juvenile, <laughs> he and uh, he was in and out of institutions in the Midwest. And by the time Charles was 21, he had served in several reformatories and finally a prison turn for car theft. Paroled, he came home uh, where he took menial jobs that he always lost through lateness absence and general neglect this is uh that was quoted manson was considered so thoroughly institutionalized by authorities that upon his 1967 release from a california prison he asked the warden if he could stay i i mean i think that a part something that we can blame is the prison system for Mm. for this uh just creating this person i mean he was institutionalized for more than half of his life at this point yeah well he was obviously like a psychopath right well there's a lot of theories about him there's the the theory that he is evil there's this theory that he had some kind of mental illness there's also like the theory that he was so on drugs that you know he didn't his brain wasn't functioning properly and he was obviously a very well well-versed in the art of manipulation. I wonder if he was able to manipulate very well in the prison system. So, like, if it worked on men as well as it did on the uh, girls. Well, something that's important to remember is that he was a very short man. He's like a third Olsen twin. <laughs> a lot of people say. <laughs> when is the alarmist about Mary-Kate Nashley? Oh. We'll, uh, we'll have to have you back on for that one. This apparently got him in a lot of trouble while he was in jail um, because he was viewed as, uh, quote unquote, weak. So maybe we we should be wary of, of short people. Though. Oh, are short we gonna... men. Short men. Put, yeah. We put but that's not board? fair. That I know a great deal of, of nice short men. How about a, a sense of physical inadequacy? Yes. Napoleonic complex. Napoleonic complex. There we go. Let's talk about the Carnegie method because it kind of goes hand in hand with who he becomes as a person or 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 the, the his guru persona that he develops in San Francisco like attracting these cult members. So the Carnegie method is um it's based on a book How to Win Friends and Influence People and it's a self-help book written by Dale Carnegie that was published in 1936. Now in prison Manson was tested and it was it was discovered that he had a high IQ. So he was then enrolled in a course based on Dale Carnegie's book while in prison. And the Carnegie method says that human actions boil down to two desires, sexual desires and the desire to achieve greatness. And this really apparently resonated with Charlie. Now, one of the method's fundamental techniques is to arouse in the other person an eager want. This is uh, from the book. To get what we want from another person, we must forget our own perspective and begin to see things from the point of view of others. When we can, can combine our desires with their wants, they become eager to work with us and we can mutually achieve our objectives. Now, this class was had a huge impact on Manson. And of course, you know, reviewers later, at first the book was, you know, widely received and as time passed on scholarly reviews became more critical chiding carnegie for being insincere and manipulative so according to the book um 
Manson, The Life and Times of Charles Manson by uh, Jeff Guinness. He, sorry, Jeff Ginn. He credits Carnegie training uh, with transforming Manson from a low-level pimp to the frighteningly effective sociopath who created a cult of killers in the late 1960s. Manson took classes in how to win friends and influence people based on Carnegie's book while doing time for car theft in California Federal State Prison in 1957, and it was critical in shaping how he manipulated people, says Gwynn, noting that the young convict told people he'd enrolled to get strangers to open up about him. So he had these like manipulative techniques that he had developed in prison that he then used to manipulate these young women who most of them were middle class, came from middle class backgrounds, but they were young. They had run away from home. They didn't have any money and they usually had very low self-esteem and he would prey on these particularly because at first what he would do is get all of their secrets and then use their secrets against them. Well, I actually find this really absurd that they are teaching this course in the prison system to the prisoners. Like of all the beneficial things you could take a class in while incarcerated. How to hatch a plan, how to hatch a scheme, 101. Well, I mean, there's the course and then there's what you do with it. I mean, the course is sort of, uh, if if you have good intentions, you could say use these techniques to start a small business or, you know, lead a good book club (laughs) (laughs) or uh, form a deadly sinister cult (laughs) of young women. Let's also talk about the diggers philosophy. Amanda, if you could put uh, the Carnegie email. uh, I gotcha. The diggers philosophy, it, uh, the diggers who originally came to the height as part of a mime troupe. This is crazy. A mime troupe where quintessential uh, they were quintessential anarchists. They believe that any organization or business, including government, schools and stores, infringed on individual freedoms. Everything should belong to everyone without cost and sustenance top the list. Even their name reflected that philosophy. The original diggers lived in 17th century England, where they defied the authoritarian government of Oliver Cromwell by taking over vacant farmland and raising produce, which they gave away for free to the starving British poor. Now, the height diggers harvested their crops from San Francisco groceries, raiding the store's back lot dumpsters. So, you know, these are like dumpster divers. And um, and that's what they would eat. Now, within the group, sexism was rampant. Digger men uh, chatted with friends and ambled around the height, while digger women scrounged, cooked, hauled, and served the food, then cleaned up afterward. And Manson takes this kind of philosophy and this movement that is happening in San Francisco, and he incorporates that into his cult. So they, they, that was how they got food. They did dumpster divings, or digging as they called it, and the women had to cook for the men, who were in the group, which there were way more men than women, but uh, they'd cook for them, serve them, and whatever they, the men didn't eat, then they could eat the scraps. This was just common uh, common courtesy, I guess, it, in the group. 
what do you think it means when like even the hippies resort to maybe the kind of family uh, structure they were running away from? I think that's they're repeating. I mean, I don't know if they necessarily wanted to escape those gender roles, but it seems like they were escaping to San Francisco to have a new identity that was separate from their parents. But then you it's almost like Lord of the Flies. You get back into your roles right Mm. away. I also think, you know, like to Johnny's point, I think patriarchy in a way it's just so embedded it was so embedded especially at that time i mean i guess you can say that that was one of the first times that they were trying to strip you know move away from it i mean it's kind of like charlie actually for all his faults is known as like really thinking women have as much power as men and giving them the power to kill he didn't just send the men out for a reason and maybe he even sent the women to do the dumpster diving because they think the men would have um, gotten in trouble quicker instead of like, oh, there's some girls, uh, whatever, just leave them be. Yeah. I don't know if there's any theory to that versus like six tall guys jumping in a dumpster. That's a fair point. I mean, the, the women who were and he picked them for being basically submissive and also attractive, right? Mm, they no, they were not. Some of them were attractive, but. Particularly, they were actually kind of um, less attractive um, because that's how he would manipulate them was he would tell them they were beautiful and they he would like create this desire for them. So that was a big part of it. So do you want me to put uh, the patriarchy up on the board? (laughs) Yeah, why not? (laughs) Now, I think we should talk about Bobby Beausoleil. Did I say that right? I think it's Beausoleil Beausoleil. or something. Beausoleil. Bourgeois, <laughs> Bobby Bourgeois. We'll, I don't know. I pr- we'll call him Bobby because there's no other Bobby yeah, in the story. Bobby B. <laughs> so Bobby was a member of the Manson family who had befriended Gary Hinman, who was a musician, a music teacher, and apparently a drug dealer on the side. In July of 1969, this is right before the murders. Bobby purchased a thousand tabs of mescaline from Hinman. Bobby resold the drugs to customers who were th- who then complained that they wanted their money back. Whether it was because of the faulty drug deal or their money back, uh, or because Manson believed that Hinman was sitting on an inheritance of twenty thousand dollars, uh, he wanted Bob he wanted Bobby to convince uh, Hinman to join the family and hand over the money. So he wanted to, at this point, they were strapped for cash. Bobby returns to Hinman's home with Sadie, who is um, uh, Atkins, Susan Atkins. Susan Atkins. And Mary Brenner, who is the first Manson girl. He's, she's the one that he, he meets in San Francisco, and she's like a librarian, and he like convinces her to let him live in her apartment. Hinman admitted that he didn't have the money. And then Bobby calls Manson, who then shows up. He took out a samurai sword and sliced Hinman's ear. And then he leaves. Bobby stitches Hinman back up. uh, I believe it was with either scotch tape or dental floss. And uh, but he fears that he'll go to when he goes to the hospital, he'll tell the police about Manson, who's their leader. So he's very... uh, Submissive to Manson. According to the website, All Things Interesting, after agonizing what to do and speaking to Manson several times, Bouzelet decided that the only thing to do was kill Gary Hinman. 
political piggy was written on Hinman's blood uh, with him in Hinman's blood across the wall. Buzalay also drew a paw print on the wall in Hinman's blood in an attempt to convince police that the Black Panthers had been involved and instigate the impending race war that Manson preached. According to the San Diego Union Tribune, which reported on the murders originally, Hinman was tortured for several days before ultimately being stabbed to death. So this this crime happens. Now, Bobby Buzalay, Beaujolais, sorry, Bobby, Uh, Bobby (laughs) was arrested on August 7th, important date, August 7th, 1969. He was found sleeping in Hinman's Fiat Fiat on the side of the highway. Manson was nervous that Bobby would snitch on him if given the chance and was determined to get him out of jail. He had he had read about a case where a suspect in jail was released after more crimes that were related to the initial crime happened while he they were in custody. Hoping to conjure the same situation in order to help Bobby get out of jail, Manson orders the Tate House murders. Hmm. Right. I've, this is what I've, I've read about this. And I think this is one of the reasons why it's so these murders are so upsetting, because when you first think of Charles Manson, you think of like a psychopath path an evil man who just wants to like incite chaos and take down the the world but then really you're like oh he's just murdering all these random people to like save his own ass and to cover up the one other murder that was based on money right so it's actually like his crimes the motive for his crimes when you go back to the root of it are like the motive for most crimes (laughs) it's like to make a buck really quick yeah and then yeah. he's just trying to save himself. Yeah, and and we can, we'll talk. We're going to dive into his music career or whatever you can call that, you know. But that was a big part of it too. It was like his status amongst the group. Like he was so, um, he was so nervous about losing that status because it was literally all he had because he didn't have the money, and they were really strapped for cash, like. The thing he didn't think about was that when you have a cult and you have a quote unquote family, you have to pay for the family. That costs a lot of money. So keep that in mind next time you want to start a cult. It's like, it's not just like, you know, one, two, three. It's not just for sex anymore. It's really not. You got to think about housing. You got to think about, you probably got to have to deal with healthcare, what, some kind of healthcare plan. What tax bracket, who you claim is a dependent. Exactly. Exactly. A lot of overhead. Okay, we got to talk about Dennis Wilson. Now, Dennis Wilson, he's the drummer of the Beach Boys, the middle brother of Brian and Carl Wilson. Um, They met because uh, Manson meets him because uh, two of the Manson girls get picked up while hitchhiking by Dennis. And they go to the house and, you know, Manson pretty much shows up because he hears that he's a Beach Boy and he wants, you know, to be part of this Hollywood music scene. So some of Manson's songs were actually recorded at Brian Wilson's home studio. Dennis also introduced Manson to a few friends in the music uh, business, including the Birds producer, Terry Melcher. And he's, he's the one whose home is 100, sorry, 150 Cielo Drive, which would later be rented by director Roman Polanski and his wife, Sharon Tate. So there's the combination. 
or there's the connection. According to National Post, in September of 1968, Dennis recorded a Manson song for the Beach Boys originally titled Cease to Exist, but then reworked it as a song called Never Learn Not to Love. And it's on the B-side released uh, the following December of 1968. It was credited solely as Dennis. Angered by this, Manson threatened murder. Wilson distanced distanced himself from Manson and moved out of the house because they were squatting in Dennis Wilson's house for like the spring and summer of 68, leaving Manson there to, uh, to be evicted. And and this kind of goes in with Terry Melcher. Let me tell you about Terry Melcher. Now, Dennis and Greg Jacobson were taken by Manson's charisma and musical talent that they pressed friend Terry Melcher to land the would-be troubadour, a uh, a label deal. According to Mercury News, Terry Melcher visited Spawn Ranch to hear Manson and the women sing. Really creepy. But Melcher pretty quickly resolved that Manson lacked any real musical talent. Apparently, the Manson made the girls like bake him cookies and like were topless. And I, I think like that was a big part of like why these guys hung around Manson because he had this group of women who were wi- who were very willing to have sex with all the guys. You know who doesn't like to talk about that part? What? Who? It is Terry Melcher's girlfriend at the time, Candace Bergen. Tell us. Murphy Brown. Ooh. Yeah. And do you know who Terry Melcher's mom was? Doris Day. Doris Day. Isn't that crazy? Uh, You should see Amanda's face. All right. Should we put Candace Bergen on the board? Put her up. Yes. (laughs) Murphy Brown strikes again. Okay. I'll just put her up there. Terry Melcher and Murphy Brown. (laughs) So, uh, you know, Melcher says, no, I'm not going to sign him finally after kind of giving him this false hope. And Manson then feels double crossed by Melcher when no record contract is materialized, which in part explains the rage he felt toward the property of 150 Cielo Drive, where Melcher lived with actress, a girlfriend, Candace Bergen. There's two things here. One of them is like his Manson's fragility. It's Mm. like he couldn't take no, he couldn't take the rejection, which is like, as I think the four of us here who are (laughs) in the entertainment scene are very (laughs) used to the, the kind of rejection that like Manson like, just couldn't he couldn't take he didn't have it so like what would we call that his fragile ego or creative angst Uh, his fragile creative ego should we just just on that note bright lights of hollywood i mean should just the lore of fame be to blame Mm, in this i love that besides the besides the ego it's like just the you know you can't just show up to Hollywood expecting to uh, waltz right on to uh, Disney Studios and uh, get your name in the bright lights. Especially during Corona. I don't think their gates are open. No. That's, no. In fact. <laughs> yeah. It's harder now than ever. That's right. That's very true. <laughs> well, if his mom was a waitress and tried to sell him for a six pack of beer or, or sell it to him for a waitress, he just wants the whole world to know about him because even his own mom didn't. I mean. Oh, I mean, do we put them up? I mean. Mommy yeah, issues. Yeah, mom issues. Yeah. yeah. But the dad was never involved. So what's worse? Yeah. Mm. It, maybe I would say like just bad uh family neglect family neglect yeah okay parental neglect okay if they had watered him more he wouldn't be so short (laughs) (laughs) 
I heard. <laughs> so let's talk Beatles. Manson explained that the social turmoil he had been predicting had also been predicted by the Beatles. The White Album songs, he declared, foretold it all in code. In fact, he maintained that the album was directed at the family. He thought it, the Beatles were writing to them in an elect group that was being instructed to preserve the worthy from the impending disaster. In January of 1969, the family left the desert cold and moved to a canary yellow home in Canoga Park, not far from Spawn Ranch. Because this locale would allow the group to remain submerged beneath the awareness of the outside world, Manson called it the Yellow Submarine, another Beatles reference. There, family members prepared for the impending apocalypse, uh, which around the campfire Manson had termed Helter Skelter after another song. Now, Helter Skelter in M Manson's verbiage was the pending race war that would see thousands die and force the family to disappear under caves. There, they would wait until it was time for them to emerge and rule what was left of the world. While Manson initially foretold that the first crimes would be committed by African Americans against whites, the desperate state of his affairs in the summer of 69, his musical aspirations had largely come to nothing and his Hollywood connections had died up, led him to shift focus and tell the family they might need to begin helter-skelter themselves, committing savage crimes in upscale neighborhoods in an attempt to demonstrate to African Americans how the violence should be carried out. Somehow I'm nervous that when Amanda puts the Beatles up on the board, she's just going to write Yoko like it's her uh, fault. <laughs> no, no we, we've, we've dispelled that. Yeah. Good. Yeah. We did a whole episode on the, the breakup of the Beatles. Mm -hmm. So, Rebecca, something that's interesting that I found that I was reading was when she was up for parole, Leslie Van Houten, um, her lawyer went to the judge and said repeated uh leslie van houten totally still believed years later everything that you were just saying that there was going to be a race war and that they were all going to meet up under the city in the desert and her lawyer said it was so clear to me that leslie was as nutty as a fruitcake i would have been in grave neglect of my duty if i didn't give the judge my opinion <gasps> and and leslie is known as the one who has rehabilitated herself in the years since and does denounce her association with charles manson and she is the only one who has a strong chance of ever getting out. But the last three governors have, it's all come up for appeal. And she was even out for a little bit for like six months and they put her back in. Wow. Uh, wow. Because she was on the second night of the murder. She was the one who stabbed one of the, the LaBianca wife, but they say she was already dead by the time she stabbed her and that they made her stab her. Yes. Because they, but she totally still believed years after everything that you were saying about um, the city under the desert and the race riots. And it's, just shows how strong Charles Manson's lure was. Mm. There's a lot we can put on the board, but a big part of his manipulation was his white superiority and his racism. So in it, there's this article that it, is titled what Charles Manson had in common with the alt-right, which is mm. kind of scary. Manson had an ingrained redneck hatred of black people. This is what the biographer Jeff Gwynn says. He is first uh, he's first around black people in prison where he is instantly intimidated 
intimidated by the Islamic Brotherhood. When he gets out of prison, he goes to Berkeley, California, where the Black Panthers scare the crap out of him. So when he gets his follow young followers, these gawky little white kids strung out on drugs, he starts telling them about the coming race war, blacks against whites. The blacks are going to rise up and massacre the whites. And when that war starts, Charlie's going to take his followers out in the desert to hide them. This kind of racial paranoia is an effective tool for controlling and containing people. In the 1960s, there's no shortage of powerful men using this tactic to arouse fear and outrage toward the black community. Riots and the emergence of armed black radicals dominated the evening news, fueling that the quote-unquote law and order and segregation forever campaigns of of Richard Nixon and George Wallace. The Manson family amounted to a strange microcosm of this racial tension in America, guided by the primal fear and hatred of African-Americans instilled in their absurd and angry leader. Oof. Yeah, that's bad. I, I put Yikes. it on the board. I put um, <laughs> Manson's white superiority complex. Yeah. He apparently took the LaBianca's wallets and left them in a gas, after they were murdered, left them in a gas station because he assumed that a black person would pick them up, st- like steal them <gasps> and use their credit cards and then hopefully be linked to the Black Panther Party somehow. But it didn't really work out that way. Well, all of the the things that were written up on the walls were also to... Um, to to involve the Black Panthers to implicate them. Right. I, I I read somewhere that it was like so absurd because the only way that these murders could have happened were if these people were white. Because if a, if a car full of black teenagers had been driving around these neighborhoods, there right. like fifty neighbors would have called the police. So another thing we should talk about is the CIA. Now let's take a quick break to hear what Tom O'Neill, author of Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s, has to say about the CIA's involvement with Manson. Can you tell us what this um, chaos uh, program that was started with by the CIA in the late 60s, um, can you tell us more about that and if that had anything to do with it? There were two programs uh that both began in 67. One was Chaos by the CIA. The other one was COINTELPRO by the FBI. And both programs were created with the authority of of Lyndon Johnson, who was president in 1967, and the cooperation of Edgar Hoover at the uh, FBI and and Richard Helms at the CIA uh, and Governor Ronald Reagan in California and, and the mayor of San Francisco, Sam Yorty, all of these men were pretty far-right wing thinkers. And the programs, CIA's was actually illegal because CIA isn't allowed to operate on domestic soil. In addition to that, their activities were illegal, as were the FBI's. They were they began by opening mail and wiretapping without warrants, and eventually, by the middle of '67, they started using undercover agents to infiltrate groups that they perceived were a threat to national security. So that began with uh, the Black Panthers that had been born in Oakland and spread across the country uh, in about '65, '66. And also uh, the SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society, um, anti-war 
uh, an anti-war movement, free speech movement, and any kind of leftist group that was trying to stop the war. And uh, the surveillance and the infiltration really escalated by 68 uh, to the point where we don't actually know too much about what chaos did or didn't do because all the records were destroyed. And that's one thing that really bothers me is I do think there must be some record of it out there. But if you look it up, we just know that it was created, who it was created by, where it operated. But I, I couldn't even tell you one agent's name who worked for him. But on the other hand, COINTELPRO, we know about that because there was a, a theft of an FBI warehouse in Pennsylvania in 1970-71 of all the COINTELPRO files, which were shared with Congress or investigations. And shockingly, the FBI eventually admitted not only to the existence of the program, but the program had been created to disrupt, smear, and even what they call neutralize these militant groups of African-Americans and leftist protesters. For instance, in Los Angeles, the FBI admitted something like uh, 12 to 16, causing 12 to 16 murders of either Panthers or their rivals, uh, who were called the uh, U.S. slaves, by telling them that an attack was about to be waged on them, having the informants do that, provoking them to attack first. So it was pretty shocking what they were doing. And um, the fact that Manson, it's harder to kind of synopsize this, but if people read the book, they'll see the the case I lay out for it being possible that Manson was just another one of these operations probably going awry. I don't think they ever wanted Sharon Tate killed or the people there, but he was treated the same way the informants were that both Chaos and COINTELPRO were using to provoke, uh, you know, they had people that were getting, should have been arrested and then released in order to do the Chaos and COINTELPRO agents' biddings. And in particular, Manson famously wanted to start a race war and to frame murders on Black Panthers. And those murders were Tate and LaBianca and Gary Hinman. It was the exact same objective that both of these agencies had at that time. Listen to the full interview on Thursday's Aftermath episode. Now back to our conversation. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, so last one. What do you want okay. to throw up? Counterculture. Just the disaffected youth, this, you know, the, if this whole thing wasn't going on, Manson would have had a, a hard, much harder time collecting cult members, essentially. Mm. It was the perfect storm. It's true. I mean, you got the Vietnam War going on. You got a re- overreaction to sort of 50s sort of cultural homogeny. This is something that I found from uh, Joshua First, author of Revolutionaries. Through from sixty six to sixty nine, everyone there's this counterculture movement, and peace and love was the obvious thing. But peace and love is vague and abstract, and that's the issue. The late sixties counterculture stripped away old systems of control and opened a blank space in society. But they weren't sure that would fill the, uh, what would fill the space, and Manson preyed on that ambiguity. Okay, so are we ready to go over what's on the board? Who's to blame for the Manson murders? Charles Manson, the prison system, Napoleonic complex, the Carnegie method, the diggers philosophy, the patriarchy, Bobby Beausolier, Dennis Wilson, Terry Melcher and Murphy Brown, Manson's fragile ego, the lore of fame, the Beatles slash the song Helter Skelter, Parental neglect, Manson's white superiority complex, the CIA, and finally, counterculture. Off the bat, I think we can take out the CIA just because we need we need more information on that. Just Rebecca's just sent her job application to the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to burn a bridge. No, exactly. Honestly, they'd be lucky to have her. They really uh, <laughs> That's the nicest thing you've ever said, Amanda. <laughs> I believe it. I mean it. <laughs> um. And I also think that we can take the Beatles off just because I think it was uh, it was more Manson's doing than like really they were just trying to make good music, I guess. I actually think we could perhaps take off the Carnegie method and the diggers philosophy. Mm. 
Yes, they were tools that he used for evil. But and Chris made a good point earlier that he could have used his training in the Carnegie Method to start a small business. That's right. How about a Froyo show? <laughs> I guess we can also take out Dennis Wilson then, because he was trying to help a friend. I know you're just trying to make me sweat, but I see Murphy Brown is still somehow accountable for all these murders. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Should we let Terry Melcher and Murphy Brown off the hook? Yeah, let them off. Yeah, because, you know, Terry Melcher just kind of got uh, roped into it from uh, through Dennis Wilson, and it's not his fault that he didn't like it. I mean, he shouldn't have let them on. Totally. Um, but you can't really blame them, I think, for the murders. I could also see us taking off... Um, Parental neglect. E- right. Yeah, because I, I I, actually think if we're going down that road of not blaming Manson, but sort of what created Manson, I think the prison system is more to blame than the parents even. I think we can take the Napoleonic complex out because I know short people who are not Yeah, there's a deeper psychos, psychosis going on You know, on sociopaths. Here. And we know tall people who are, so that's true. That's right. <laughs> we still have Charles Manson, the prison system, the patriarchy, Bobby Bosselet, Manson's fragile ego, lure of fame, Manson's white supremacy, comp- superiority complex, and counterculture. I think we can let set Bobby free. You know, it's not his fault that Manson spiraled. Right. Right. And he was just taking Manson's orders, right? It wasn't his fault that he did what Manson told him to do. I think we can maybe remove the patriarchy Mm. i don't love i i hate the patriarchy but for some reason there's so much more at play here yeah it's not quite the right fit here what are we feeling about manson's white superiority complex like i almost feel like his fragile Ego? ego is more to blame even than his racism in a way because his drive was not so macro it was more narcissistic yes right i think he used the racism as a as a tool now what about the prison system do we think we want to keep that on or take that off i think we got to keep that on i mean they didn't they definitely didn't do a great job rehabilitating him okay so what about taking the lore of fame off yeah because his ego goes with his ego yeah we gotta let countercultural off the hook right i agree now this is my question for us are we going to send Charles Manson to jail? We're going to, you know, get him up from hell or heaven, wherever he is, and send him back to jail? Or do we want to do something a little bit more unexpected? It's like the ego's what got him, in my opinion. I think we could send the ego to jail and give the prison system the big slap. That's my instinct, too. Sounds good to me. It's a good way to do something internal, which is his fragile ego, and something external, which was the prison system, and the two of them collided. Yeah, interesting, because the prison system did teach him the Carnegie method. Yeah, it kind of fueled the what what he you know his ego. The prison system, you're getting the big slap. Manson's fragile ego, you're going to the alarmist jail. Who's the, his um, bunker mate in the Alarmist jail? Oh, good question. Ooh, who should we put him with? Well, I was thinking somebody really tall and a really talented musician. Ideally, would be torture for him. If <laughs> well, I think tall. we have. I think we actually have John John Lennon. Isn't John Lennon in our John uh, Lennon's oh, anger Len- is in jail? Uh, yes. No, it's it's. Uh, I think it's his fr- uh, fragility or his um, his Lennon's- inner rage. 
Anyway, I think we're putting Charlie Manson with John Lennon. Yeah, that's, that's perfect. That's, yeah, that's perfect. yeah. They're going to torture each other because J- Charles Manson is going to be like, listen to this song, listen to this song. And J- John Lennon is going to be like, shut up. <laughs> After the murders, Charles Manson remained imprisoned until his death from cardiac arrest resulting from respiratory failure and colon cancer on November 19, 2017. He was just a few days past his 83rd birthday and had spent all but 13 years of his life in a supervised setting. Susan Atkins remained in prison until her death from brain cancer at age 61 in 2009. Patricia Krenwinkel Leslie Van Houten, and Charles Tex Watson remained incarcerated. In 1975, Manson follower Lynette Squeaky Frome became the first woman in history to try and assassinate an American president. The attempt on President Gerald Ford took place in Sacramento. For the crime, Frome was sentenced to life in prison. She was paroled from prison on August 14, 2009. She continues to profess her allegiance to Manson. you think is to blame by going to the alarmistpodcast.com follow us at the alarmist the on twitter at the alarmist podcast on instagram or email us at the alarmist podcast at gmail.com tune in next week we'll be discussing the gypsy rose blanchard case Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.